this is uh, This is Joe Cole. This is Ruben off the cheek, and you're listening to the London, London is Blue, Blue podcast. podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode. That's right, of the London is a Blue podcast. It's an international break edition episode. Dan, one of your hosts here. Hope you're staying safe and staying well. And I don't know, finding something else other to do that is not Chelsea related for at least part of the international break, seeing a movie, going to learn a new hobby, just getting outside, getting into the outdoors. But you know what? Maybe I'm not taking my own advice because I'm here with Sam. You know him as CFC Central. And we're just taking a look a little bit into the future, Sam. We want to go a little bit beyond where we are now in the current time of the season because once Chelsea and the men's team in particular kick a ball again, it'll be April. And the season ends uh, very shortly after that, which means the summer transfer window is not that far away. And we wanted to maybe just do a little bit of early analysis and work our way through the team. We do want to start with midfield because as we put out the Twitter thread and asked people for suggestions on topics that we could do together, this was one that... I don't know. The echoes reverberated around the room and just absolutely drowned out all the other topics people wanted us to dig into. And so, Sam, welcome back. Are you ready? Does it feel weird to be talking about summer transfers today? Uh, not at all, to be honest. I think I consider you and I to be the most progressive part of this this podcast, with no offense to everybody else, because we're always looking ahead. You know, we, we never sort of like stop for a breather. Uh, we're two months away from basically getting into the thick of of like transformania, but that's the thing that we love doing. You know, we love sort of picking up on these players, picking up on on the right kind of gems before other clubs sort of come into the fight and try to take it away from us. So, I'm uh, very happy to talk about the guys who could be coming to the club. Uh, it is now become incredibly evident that we need um, defensive reinforcement, make the engine room a little more difficult to to overcome. So. I'm looking forward to this, and uh, hopefully one of the guys that we're talking about today ends up at the club. Well, we have four individuals that we're going to go through in particular, and then we do have a couple of just lightning round individuals at the end that we think we'd like to maybe just put on the periphery that we would consider in case some of our main targets didn't become available, maybe a little bit more of a, a money ball signing or trying to use products from the academy and the loan army but before we get to that we want to say thank you to everybody's left a five-star review in apple Podcasts and spotify if you're on a platform where you can leave a five-star review and say nice things about sam and myself but mostly about sam please do so it helps people find the show particularly as we know uh, more and more fans more and more supporters coming to chelsea and uh, we love welcoming them in to a wonderful podcast experience and hey you also can support the podcast with patreon as well join our wonderful discord community and that's it for the admin so now let's get into the footballing stuff, which is really what everybody is here for. Dan, may I just please please do my first plug-in like off of my London? What? Yeah, what? I, I, I'm just gonna say, do not leave nice things about anybody else but the three like wonderful, <laughs> wonderful hosts because we're approaching the thousandth episode. So obviously, it has to be like the best of what you've heard from Dan, Nick, and Brandon. So please. Leave your love, shower them with everything that you've got because, you know, it is no mean feat what these guys have done over the years. So all of us owe so much to them. And uh, even as people who come on the podcast, we're constantly learning and getting better from them. So um, extremely, extremely uh, happy for you guys. And congratulations. Superb. This is like superbly deserved. And hopefully this is like the first thousand 
landmark that you're going to hit? Oh, Sam, you you sprung it on me. You didn't put it in the script. You didn't. You caught me off guard. I feel a little bit like uh, I don't know one one of our defenders when they watch a, a ball sl- <laughs> fly by when they're not paying attention. And uh, no, thank you for that. Uh, for those kind words, we are looking forward to all the episodes we're going to drop next week. And since we'll have announced it on Twitter on Thursday, and this will drop on Friday, the twenty fourth of March, Lee Parker is the first individual, the first club official, club employee who is joining us on the three episodes that we recorded in London. We'll be dropping them on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday of next week. So stay tuned because we'll continue to drop some more hints on the personnel at the club that uh, had an opportunity, had some time to join us while we were over there. So we look forward to that being, again, as Sam said, the first thousand of hopefully many that we are able to produce but again we press on we press forward we get into the midfield and particularly a midfield that we didn't think necessarily was going to be reinforced the way it was in the january transfer window massive signing of enzo fernandez who's looking every bit the individual that we were promised. Yes, it was an expensive price tag, but boy, oh boy, he is an exciting player to watch. And now this begs the question, what are we actually looking for in our next center mid? What type of profile of player? What are the skills, abilities? How do they complement? And, and I think another thing that we should consider, Sam, too, is also the complement of existing midfield players that we have currently because we have some that are nearing the end of their contract there are some who are looking to potentially get renewed and that also is going to play a part in who that next signing is so maybe do you want to walk us through who that complement to Enzo is because I think we say the Enzo plus individual is the individual midfielder to be named or determined is what the likely pairing is next year and then how does that maybe impact the existing complement of midfielders we have? No, I think uh, there are two sort of predominant factors that I would love for people to keep in mind. The first, obviously, before Enzo came, we had a clean slate in terms of how we wanted to work, which players we wanted to go for. Obviously, we hadn't invested in midfield for the longest time. Uh, but when you have a unicorn like Enzo Fernandez in the market, somebody who's so good at everything else. He's so established at every single phase of the game. Can play multiple roles. He's displayed that with Argentina. You know, he can play as a six. He can play as an eight. He can play in a diamond. He can play in a box. So many different variations. Also a great passer, high volume passer. He's now sort of like, you know, the creative fulcrum of the team. He's got that passing range. So having somebody like him, obviously you want to bring out the best in, in his strengths. So I think one of those things that we have to look at is how do we optimize and how do we make sure that Enzo can do his thing and find somebody who gives us that level of balance, make sure that Enzo can do his thing and also reinforce what has been arguably one of our weaknesses, which is like dealing with transitions for years, like after Nemanja Matic left, haven't been dealing with those very well. The amount of times, you know, bottom 10 teams come and hit us on the break. It's been a little embarrassing to see. So. Hopefully, that is something that we need to keep in mind. And the second thing that I would say is just the profile of midfielders that uh, the new hierarchy bought when they came in. When you look at Kani Chukwameka, when you look at Andre Santos, when you look at even, say, Conor Gallagher, who's been there from before, all these guys are 
box to box sort of sick like eight ten hybrids you you sort of like see them as best in a three man midfield not arguably a two man midfield and resandos obviously has played in a two but you look at gallagher who struggled under tuchel to play in a two you see cesare casade who's arguably also best as a box to box midfielder so obviously there is a gap in terms of finding somebody who can play as that lone six somebody who can offer stability who can offer a kind of platform for the other midfielders to go and do their thing so i think that is also something that we need to keep in mind so when i'm looking at midfielders when i looked at midfielders for this list um it was pretty easy obviously because we've been linked with three of those four names but i'm also looking at certain factors the essentials obviously being a defensive minded i would also say positionally disciplined great at defensive transitions it would be also great to have somebody who's very good in the first phase able to do something that jorginho did receive with his back to goal make sure that you're assisting in build up to make us a little more possession based um also have a high level of technical execution under pressure i think those are things that i'm looking as necessities and bonus is obviously somebody who's extremely good in the air high quality dueler extremely consistent also very good at proactive and reactive defending not just being aggressive and being able to press but also defend going back on his back foot so i think that's something that i'm also looking at and the last point obviously correlating to the two factors that i stated can play as a lone six or a dm and can play in a two man midfield so those are the factors that i'm looking at recoveries also i would say a, a key key part because we haven't ranked well on those metrics at all we don't have somebody who's eating up those second balls when you look at somebody like a rodri for example and you look at somebody like a fabinho even thiago alcantara has had, had such great recovery numbers at liverpool these are guys who eat up second balls and make sure that you know there are no counter attacking opportunities who is that guy doing it for us it's not enzo because he's helping in in counter pressing so we genuinely don't have anybody trying to stop those opportunities from happening in the first place So when I look at Rodri 11.7 recoveries uh, per 90 minutes he's top in Premier in the Premier League this season has been I think for the last couple of seasons as well and does 43.8% of his recoveries in the opposition half so somebody along those lines would I would say be a perfect fit. When you mentioned the maintaining possession you know that was something that was criticized a little bit under prior managers and when you look at Chelsea's performances this season I mean the highest possession we had in kind of a single game was around 71% and that was against Nottingham Forest and West Ham uh, two two matches there but we've been anywhere from effectively within the 50s to 60s in in most games and so what is the thought in terms of how much possession this side and this complement of players want to have uh, and uh, it, we we could use a cheeky answer just enough to score the goals to win and control the game <laughs> but maybe we could be more specific around like why we want certain amounts of possession because of the way that that Potter is trying to play in particular no i think we saw the benefits of being able to exercise a high level of control under Thomas Tuchel especially in the Champions League i would say a key part of blunting manchester city's threat in the final even doing a lot of damage to the other teams that we faced was keeping the ball away from them i think that's how you cause a lot of damage in knockout competitions 
And it's something that I think we've conceded under Gram Porter because we're going for a more vertical approach. We're looking to utilize transitions a lot more. So I don't see this team trying that hard to control a game after going up. And I don't mean like sit back and, and try to attack on the counter like we tried to do against Everton and then sort of like conceded a goal. The best thing would be to have a team that can do everything, can be vertical when it wants to be, can also play a passing game, keep 70-80% of the ball against these bottom clubs, which are trying to sort of like get the ball away from you. Make sure that you pass it around, tie them out. We haven't seen those signs from Graham Porter's Chelsea. So um, I really, really would want somebody to be a high volume passer, to, to be able to do that, you know, to have an engine room with these two really good central midfielders who can do that thing for us, you know, hold fort, make sure that we aren't giving away loose balls in, in the center of the field and uh, see the game out in, in the most secure way possible, which we did under Thomas Tuchel, which I missed, to be honest. Well, let's hope that whatever pairing we end up putting together brings back that calm, that confidence, and that ability to really just eliminate touches on the ball for the other team because the fewer opportunities they have to shoot, the fewer opportunities they have to shoot on target, the fewer opportunities they have to potentially put a goal past us as well. And so... Yeah, it just can't be, though, possession for possession's sake, which is, I think, the uh, comment of maybe like under um, Riccio Sari at times where supporters struggled with the amount of possession we had and sometimes what we did not do with it. Um, we're going to take a real quick break because we've set the foundation for the type of player that really is what we think the club should be targeting or going after as a partner and second midfielder next to Enzo. And we're going to start going through those individual names. And some of them may be familiar, maybe one, maybe two, a little less familiar. You might have heard it before, but you don't know them yet. So stick around and we'll be right back. Are you missing out on your favorite shows because it's not available in your region? Trying to keep your private time private? Well, let me introduce you to NordVPN. If you're bored of the U.S. Netflix, why not just take it for a spin in the U.K.? Using NordVPN and a click of a button, you can do just that. No need to travel to Japan for your favorite anime when NordVPN brings it right to you with 5,000 plus servers. No show is out of your reach. Using my link, nordvpn.com forward slash London is blue. You can receive a huge discount on a two-year plan with one month free. We all love the binge, but privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. They've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. Don't forget, there's literally no risk to you with their 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue a refund, and you can pretend the entire situation never happened check it out my link nordvpn.com forward slash london is blue to get your subscription started today all right sam so we teased the fact that some of these names are going to be familiar of the certain players some of them are potentially familiar but not really you know like a you know them from a friend of a friend of a friend so it's a very parasocial relationship you have with this individual this player and then some that maybe an individual just hasn't heard of at all and so we're going to run through these players we're going to talk about how they're performing this season and really set the foundation for like why they would be a 
great signing and also maybe what the opportunities they would have um, if they if they were to come to Chelsea. And so I will just give it to you to introduce the first individual. Very clever, Dan. Very, very clever. Giving the mantle of, you know, gaslighting half of the fan base. Uh, I completely understand this clever chess move, but uh, I will I will happily take that responsibility away from you. The first one I think arguably best suited for the role is Declan Rice. We're just gonna let that sit there. We're just gonna let that sit there for a moment because <laughs> I, was, I just left it there. I just threw it in the air, and I can I can hear like a thousand face palms, a couple of curse words floating out of people's car windows. But uh, yeah, I think I think. Being an extremely neutral person, I have no affiliations to Declan Rice. I'm not English. So, I mean, I, I genuinely don't have <clears throat> any sort of, you know, PR kind of given to me, no brown envelopes. Uh, but, you know, just, just basically putting it out there in terms of what I've seen consistently over the past few years, this guy could effectively be the second unicorn to sit in in the midfield. He's just somebody who's been putting in spectacular performances day in day out for a for a pretty bad team let's just put it out there west ham haven't been good at all this season and and he's been there and, and been there saving grace i i don't know where they would have been without him and he's doing basically everything that you would want from from a world class central midfielder so i definitely think he should be there you know he should definitely be somebody that the club actively wants to target forget about the chelsea dna forget about you know unfinished history and all that crap it's just He's a fantastic player. Marco Verratti said that today before before the England-Italy uh, game, which is ongoing as they record the podcast. So what else do you want? I think you touched on why people are concerned or why there are narratives surrounding the Declan Rice potential transfer. You know, Obviously, former Chelsea Academy product goes over to West Ham, has been the captain of that side very regularly. And there's been a very large price tag associated with him because West Ham have had the negotiating power. They've had the leverage. And so they can say, oh, he's a 75 million. He's a 100 million pound player. And in a market where there is a requirement in pretty much every league that a certain amount of players have to come from academy systems, have to come from uh, growth within that, that country, or uh, it, it really, I think, has because of how long it's gone on and because of how frequent the name has come up year after year after year, I think, and maybe this is a, the wrong perception, but I think people are tired of being associated with Declan Rice. And that might be why some of the people are not as excited as they should be. Because when you go through the stats, that you've pulled together when we go through a little bit of the game tape that I know that you watched in advance and some of the matches that I've seen this season, there's a lot there to be really excited about. And if you just remove the name Declan Rice and you said it's the, the cave allegory, if you just said all this information and this was the player that you were talking about, you would be over the moon excited about what they could bring to your team if you just took away the fact that it was Declan Rice. Absolutely. I mean, if you could if you could sort of like blank out people's memory and then just sort of tell them that these are the numbers that you're looking for, everybody would be sort of harping about getting this player in. Because you look at every single box that I've talked about, somebody who's tactically versatile, 
somebody who's got availability in his pocket, who's been consistently playing week in, week out without any injuries, um, can play a high level of of multiple duties in midfield. You know, if you want him to progress, he can carry, you want him to pass it and get up, sort of progress it, he does that as well. Anti-transition cheat code, somebody who's excellent at stopping, you know, opposition counterattacks, can slot into centre-back, can do sort of a little bit of the first phase as well. So he's, he's like, for me, when I look at this guy, I'm like, has to be, has to be on our shortlist. Top of it, absolutely, 100%. It's just the games that I've watched, like, for example, when we've been watching him for for West Ham and I've been watching him for, for England, when I'm watching him for just... The way that he plays, the way that he understands what his responsibility is, it's it's incredible. This guy is tactically intelligent. You look at him, how he plays next to a Thomas Suchek, you know, how conservative he is. Sometimes when, when he came into the Premier League, Suchek, there was this lovely sort of interchange going on when they would swap in terms of who would go forward to attack, who would stay back and sort of defend. He's gone from that to sort of becoming the selfless guy who gives... Jude Bellingham, the kind of platform to go ahead and, and do his thing for England. So he's happy to do that, you know, part, that selfless part of saying, go ahead, I will take care of everything behind. And I think that's what Enzo Fernandez needs. He needs somebody to make sure that even if I am counter-pressing and I miss, there is somebody behind who's going to guard my defense, who's going to screen it well and, and do the kind of responsibilities needed. He is an excellent carrier of the ball, something Enzo is not. So you have a nice compliment there. You know, even if you even if a team comes to Stamford Bridge or or if you're in a high-level European competition and somebody wants to man-mark Enzo out because of his influence, you have another person there who's able to provide progression, who's able to keep sort of the game ticking over with the level of um, brilliance that he has. So I think this is a no-brainer, to be honest. If it's possible get it done. Even though he's had a little bit of an off-season, I would say, by his own lofty standards, I would say he's good for the money. So he should definitely be there. Would you say that his off-season, in terms of the regression on some of the metrics, is due to the fact that he has been maybe an outperform for quite some period of time? and Or is it maybe more the system and structure that West Ham are playing. We've seen this for many Chelsea players this season who are having record poor performances because the team has generally been poor, has gone through injury issues, has really seen a high level of rotation. So some of the on-pitch chemistry gets a little bit adjusted. Where do you think maybe the cause of some of those uh, declines are? I think, like I talked about his availability, just the amount of football that he's played, I think, is also sort of factored in out of out after just three, four seasons. Uh, when we were looking at his his numbers, he was top of the five European leagues uh, in the nineteen twenty season for minutes played, three thousand four hundred and twenty in one season alone, and he's consistently been there. He's not missed too many games because of injury. And like you mentioned, I think a part of that also comes from just playing in a bad team. I think it's just demotivating. He knows he's a notch above almost everybody else who's in that team. And and he's been trying to put his best foot forward every single game. And we've seen the kind of games that he's, you know, stood up in. You, You see him against Liverpool. The entire team can't keep the ball. They're just, you know, hooping it for clearances. And this guy is just trying to win the ball back, trying to organize his team, trying to put some semblance of of a fight back together. So I think that also plays on your psyche a little bit. I think he'll be desperate to move 
in the summer if even if west ham sort of like avoid the drop i think he'll be absolutely you know determined to move irrespective of his contract so um yeah i think i think those factors have played in but i wouldn't be worried i think when if he elevates himself to a better club uh, to a club that is performing not as well as it should but with players that can offer him you know a better platform to play at i think he will thrive i think he will make us better and i think we will make him better so it's a match made in heaven so i'm someone who's been on the fence not me individually i love this suggestion but let's say i'm playing the persona of someone who struggled with the idea of signing declan rice it just doesn't fit my vision of the type of player that we should go after are there particular matches or games that you would point to to say not not to so extreme to say like are you blind did you not watch what this guy just did imagine dropping him in next to midfield next to enzo fernandez what are you doing like something that helps get people excited if they were just maybe instead of to go watch a highlight reel which i think can brush over particularly for a midfielder like what it is they're actually doing in a game but is there a moment or a couple of games that you could recommend somebody go try to find in the archives to help convince them or help solidify that this is a really really great signing potentially for Chelsea no oh, I think he has he's had a couple of like not a couple of like lots of really really good games I wouldn't recommend the West Ham ones um but the euro fi- finals against Italy he was very good and after he went off England started to sort of like shake a little bit in in the finals so that sort of talks of his influence there have been a lot of other games where you can see for example how incredibly tuned he is to to playing any role that you give him i was watching the game against aston villa and uh, he's suddenly been shifted to to a dm position where i've actually been talking about how he's not you know very good at at sort of like the deepest screen kind of position but he played in that role and and played that role very well just the way that he understands when to move when when to stay back when the danger is going to come and i i might get a lot of stick for this but when i'm looking at a player who's got a comparable amount of intuition a comparable amount of anticipation to where danger is going to come from like engolo kante i look at declan rice and i watch a lot of football and i don't want to say i i've like the best eye or something but you know i have watched a lot of midfielders to try and find out who this guy is who sits next to enzo and this guy consistently pops up it's just the way he behaves his actions the way he deals with danger even when you see him for example how he deals with counter attacks just being able to understand when he needs to be aggressive when he needs to stand back and wait for the attackers these little things then like for example the way he tackles he's got such long leggy feet he never goes down never goes down on a sliding tackle he's always always on feet always tackles back in like half a second ready to make the next one make sure that he's got at least 2 2 feet distance between him and a tackle so that if a dribbler tries to go either way he's got a second to telegraph what's going to happen these little things these little mannerisms in which he's how how he's gamed the system how he knows how to deal with people 1v1 how he does individual duties very well I think that gives me a lot of faith that if you put him in any system it's a plug and play. I look at his numbers also popping when we're talking about somebody who's able to sort of sit in the middle of the park give us recoveries 232 he's second only to Rodri and this is despite Declan Rice going into the box for corners 
making sure that he's going to get his head at the end of like deliveries from West Ham. So he's not even sitting in Rodri's position, but has the same number of, you know, recoveries. 35% in the opposition half, but when you see him trying to get those loose balls, how he senses, how he scans things happening a second before they happen, I think that gives you a lot of faith in terms of how good a player he is. It's hard to define, like it's hard to sort of give you one instance, but watch him over and over again, watch him very closely, drown out the other players and, and you'd sort of tend to see how this guy behaves. And I think that's that's a sign of an elite player. And And just to cap on it, Anything that has you majorly concerned about him coming to Chelsea? Burnout, for sure. Like, I think he's played a lot of games. And uh, there has been a worrying trend of especially England players dropping off, you know, in terms of performances after after major tournaments. If you see Harry Kane had sort of like this injury and then he dropped off at the beginning of the season. Mason Mount hasn't been the same. We've had some two very, very grueling seasons. Uh, where we went deep into the Champions League, we had to travel for the Super Cup, and it's taken its toll. Raheem Sterling had injuries, was relatively injury-free, but he's had injuries. He's also looked a little off the pace. Uh, Jordan Henderson, who's suffering for Liverpool. So I think, you know, maybe the dip that we've seen from Declan Rice is also sort of like contingent on that. It's the amount of games that he's played, the amount of fatigue that comes from traveling, from playing the kind of calendar that he's been playing. So I think that's something that, that I'm worried about. And uh, what I'm worried about is that, you know, probably Graham Porter says, you know, I, I think he's going to be best as as a number six. And then you play him in a 4-3-3 at the base of a, of a defensive midfield. I think he can do it. But I would say, again, like an N'Golo Kante, why would you keep him there? You know, he's somebody who you should give free reign to. You should, like, allow him to trust his instincts to do his thing. So... Why not? Like, you know, I think you should definitely play him in the role that that he sort of performs best in. But I think he might be misprofiled as as a sitter. But if you're going with somebody who fits next to Kovacic, who fits very well next to Enzo Fernandez, next to Andre Santos, Declan Rice. I would go Declan Rice. Well, as we continue our journey through these four midfielders, we maybe have closed the book or at least paused the conversation on Declan Rice as we go forward to... Another name, and I think this is the one out of the four that people are likely most unfamiliar with because this is the one player who does not currently play in the Premier League. But I know, Sam, you have turned, I think, a fair number of people on to watching him this season just based upon your analysis and some of the stats that you've put out. So let's introduce behind door number two. It is... Manuel Ugarte. I've I've been following this guy for uh, close to a year, year and a half. He actually popped up when I was uh, watching Pedro Porro for um, as a possible sort of competitor to reach James. Obviously, Porro's now gone to Spurs, but just at that moment, his numbers were sort of off the charts. When I was looking at his dual numbers back then, I was like, "This can't be true." Like, I think something's glitched. Maybe it's like a small sample size. But he's begun from there, like in, in Joao Palinia's shadow. And when Palinia moved to, to Fulham, he's come into his own. And he's now basically one of the key guys at 21 years old um, in the heart of that sporting midfield. So I've been, I've been harping about him on the timeline. You know, I apologize to everybody except the Uruguayans. A lot of Uruguayan Chelsea fans have come and said, you know, thank you so much. But this guy's just been waiting for 
to be discovered to sort of like get the move that he deserves. And I, I absolutely agree there. I think he could be the next superstar midfielder to come out of like relative uh, non EPL obscurity, sort of, uh, you know, somebody coming from outside the league and like catching it by a storm. I think he could do it. He gave a very, very good account of himself in in the second leg against Arsenal, even though he got sent off. But um, yeah, he's just I've been lo- I've been in love watching this guy, and I think he could be an excellent addition to um, a midfield that could you know completely transform. I think it could transform into a very hyper aggressive, extremely sort of well pressing um, unit, which could offer aggression, industry. And could uh, learn to close games off over the 90 minutes and not drop off intensity the way that we have. All things that are very, very exciting. And and maybe I think when you take the FB ref photos of just his stats relative to players within his position, it, it's very clear that even at a, a young age of, of 21 for a professional footballer, like his profile might actually fit better with the way that Chelsea have gone after, you know, players who are in their early twenties versus mid twenties in terms of the talents that we're going after longer contracts. He almost, even though he's coming in a little bit more out of left field, feels like the, the stats, the opportunity to grow the ability to accelerate potentially into this you know, monstrous player would be something that the feels like the current scouting department just is gonna they're gonna find out about this guy and it's just gonna be like a love story they're gonna fall in love they're gonna want to take him to dinner they're they're gonna want to you know get engaged they're gonna want to bring him back home to Stanford Bridge oh, I think I'd be very surprised if the club isn't already looking at him especially you know considering the masterclass that he put in. So I think, um, you know, he's he's just somebody who I think can do a high level of of a, a midfield duty in whichever role that you would want to do. He's somebody who's comfortable being aggressive and pressing up front when, when you see him, how quick he is. Something that I've noticed when I was looking for like DMs, CMs in Europe, the one thing that was sort of lacking was explosiveness, just the ability to be quick to to close down to to make a decisive defensive action or going backwards when you're tracking runners against the wingers against the quicker guys like Bukayo Saka can your DM keep up you know especially when it's on a break and most of the guys I've looked at I'm like no I don't think this happens you know they don't have the athleticism they might be very good on the ball but it it's not there it the duty that they are there to perform it if they can't do it then why are we spending the amount of money that we are to get a defensive player. And when I look at Ugarte, he's about six feet tall, but very leggy against somebody who's got, you know, very quick strides, covers ground fantastically. I think is I don't have his distance stats, unfortunately, but uh, if I somehow got, you know, my my hands on them, I'm pretty sure he must be off the charts. He works extremely hard and, and he maintains that intensity over the 90 minutes. It's something that is that's grasped my attention. Um, one thing that also stood out for me is how good his concentration levels are. When you look at his positioning, when you look at his marking, when you look at how well he understands and keeps track of everything that's going around him for the entire duration of the game, again, at 21, gives me the right kind of feeling, gives me the sense that this player has the ability 
the potential to sort of build and become an even better player. It's just, it screams out for me. I think he's just popping out at me and saying, you know, I'm here, like take notice. It's just so many things that you could do with him. He's also sort of like gone from, you know, like I said, a Palinia kind of player. Like you could have seen him as a defensive destroyer, just purely a guy who wouldn't do too much on the ball, but would give you a lot of tackles, a lot of interceptions. To somebody who's completing 90% of his passes, you know, he's he's playing it safe, he's playing his short, but he's making sure that he's now at the tip of a 3-1 for sporting, allowing other players to do, the, do their thing. He's playing next to this very promising uh, player called Pedro Gonzalez, who scored a beautiful goal against Arsenal from around the halfway line. Um, and, and to complement that kind of a player, who's this maverick who wants to attack, who wants to sort of get into the box, take long shots, you know, do do the more flamboyant things. Ugarte has got the mentality at 21 to say, you know what, do it. I don't care about those things. You know, I'm going to sit here, make sure that everything's watertight, protect my defense, win recoveries in the defensive third, in the middle third, and just keep recycling. And that's all he does. He's also like doing this in a system, in a, in a club, which is averaging around 60% of its possession every single game. So when I look at those things, when he's doing it in a possession-based side, he's keeping the ball, he's also winning it back, and he's also keeping us tight and preventing transitions, screams out like the perfect perfect fit for me. So I, I would actually say, you know, if you want to sort of go for a money ball kind of option, if you want to go for like his 51 million release clause, you're getting no complaints from me. Oh, no complaints from Sam is a... I, don't know, I feel like that might be one of the highest levels of recommendation you provide, but let's talk about, I mean, are there other strengths that you want to get into, or maybe should we talk about the weaknesses or where people just with maybe some of the other signings that we've had recently, where again, they are not the finished article. They are a player, they are developing, they're young within their career that he is not going to be just dropped in and be maybe as perfect as Enzo is in terms of like an adaptation to the Premier League. No, I think there are certain things that he can definitely get even better at. Like, for example, when I'm looking at his defensive numbers, I have no problems. He's, he's averaging around 6.8 ground duels per 90, which is a tremendous amount when you're sort of considering that he's doing this in a possession-based side. When I was watching him against Eintracht Frankfurt, I think he he had 12 tackles in 90 minutes. And I think Enzo Fernandez had 10 over 120 minutes in the World Cup final. So it just gives you a good picture of how much work he puts in uh, over the 90 minutes. He's just extremely industrious. But he's also got this great ability to carry the ball through pressure. You know, he's also learning to be press resistant. He's asking for the ball, something that I didn't see before. When he was playing next to somebody like a Matthias Nunez, who's now at Wolves, when he was playing next to just somebody who is comfortable getting the ball under pressure, he's now learning to do it himself. So I think he can develop even more. If we're trying to get somebody who's at the bottom of the ladder that he wants to be at the top of. So I think he will get better at those things. His carrying, his ability on the ball, his long balls are improving, his dribbling is improving. Um, I think it will get even better from here. So, so those things also supposed to be kept in mind. His recovery is again something that I talked about, even with relation to say Declan Rice and Rodri. He's averaging 10.66. So he's managing more than Declan Rice and 45, almost 45% in the opposition half. He's sixth in the league and third central midfielder in the Portuguese Liga. And and he's he's managing 90% of 
almost 90% of of passing success in the opposition half so for me it's it's somebody who's got a grip on all the fundamentals it's just polishing him making him ready for the role in a higher league and i think he will adapt very very well so um yeah and i think it's just the suitability as well dan i mean when i'm looking at what worked for enzo fernandez at benfica when i look at florentino luis um somebody who also wanted to press who's a good defensive midfielder but roger schmidt said you're not going to sit back and defend you're going to go ahead and and win the ball back if you want to recreate somewhat of that system at chelsea if you want both your central midfielders to press and and offer high intensity output get him because i think enzo and him would again form a very very devastating you know aggressive midfield partnership something that we've lacked the kind of bite that we've lacked for the better part of half a decade so I, i'm very excited by this and uh, hopefully there's a chance that we get him no links yet but keeping my fingers crossed well we will talk about some of those other players that chelsea have been linked with previously as we round out these four but we are going to take a quick break thank these sponsors for financially supporting the show and we will be right back all right sam so as we continue the journey we have names that people will be reminded of whether it was the summer transfer window or the January transfer window players at Chelsea have already been linked with previously um, because of associations either within our coaching tree or our recruitment tree where I don't know, everybody gets one. It seeming like is the, is the potential way of bringing people to Chelsea at the moment, but we're going to go next to one that I think is going to be less popular just because it's another Brighton player in Casado that people may have an opinion about not wanting to funnel more money to Brighton and continue to allow them to see on-field and off-field success as we continue to try to rebuild. So I think this one might be a little bit harder of a case for you to make to the audience, but I stand ready to support you in every way I can. <laughs> no, I think I I sort of picked Kaiseido for the for the sole reason because we have been linked heavily with him, and I think he was one of the only midfielders apart from uh, Enzo that we actually bid for. So I think uh, sort of fo- foreshadowing a possible transfer saga in the summer. I thought that it would be nice to cover him just to sort of give. a glimpse into why possibly um we are sort of being a uh, brighton's personal charity trust fund but uh, you know it, it sort of makes sense because he's also somebody who's 21 years old uh, has proven that he can thrive in the premier league and has all those sort of hallmarks you need from um possibly being a very well-rounded central midfielder there have been comparisons to ngolo kante which i think a little far fetched but um yeah in terms of somebody who can again offer a high level of proficiency in every role that he plays i think you you have to definitely consider him in the conversation so as we go through it then and we talk about kaiseido for those who claim to have watched brighton but maybe didn't watch it watch them as much as they say they did What are the strengths that Caicedo brings into the midfield? Why would he be a good partner for Enzo as we talk about this, you know, second part second midfielder to this partner to our other uh primary midfielder? Well, like all things Brighton, I think he's had a very interesting arc. 
because when I was watching Graham Porto at Brighton, trying to understand how his teams play, um, there was obviously his his ability to be a very good, I would say, box-to-box midfield. I think that's what the role was at Brighton, trying to provide you know some kind of a connection between the defensive box and the offensive box and obviously dominating every stage of play there. He's an extremely um, mobile, very energetic midfielder. His engine is fantastic. Uh, he's also like like Ugarte, somebody who's extremely able at defending closer to the opponent's goal as well as like going back. You know, when you have to track runners, when you have to keep up with them, make tackles, got the, all the ability you need, all the defensive acumen you need from somebody like him to sort of make sure that nothing happens on counterattacks. So obviously, you had somebody like a Yiz Bissouma who was the sitter at Brighton. So he obviously didn't have to play as a DM. And I think that role suited him. Like Kante, who doesn't want to sit at DM, I think he's somebody who should allow you should allow to sort of like push forward, make sure he's defending on the front foot. You know, he can do things going back, but you want him somewhere closer to the opposition goal. You want him carrying the ball up to the field, linking play. I think those are the things that have sort of helped him a little bit, nudged him towards improving his skill set. But then again, I was like, you know, he's not probably what we're looking for. You know, he at, at Brighton, there was no stress in terms of wanting to drop back and help and build up because first it was Adam Lalana who was doing it. And then Graham Porto sort of made Alexis McAllister from a number 10 to a DM. So it was actually McAllister who was receiving the ball as sort of like the first midfielder and then shifting it wherever it needed to go. So Kaisero was just positioning himself as somebody who was starting the second phase, just just sort of beyond McAllister to receive the first pass as he turned. So now that's changed. Under Roberto De Zerbi, if you see the kind of build-up that's happened, everybody's low. It's about luring the opposition to try and press you and then exploding out of that press and sort of like giving the likes of Kaoru Mitoma and all the other attackers, Solu March, the space you need to sort of run and and sort of like wreak havoc. And that's where Kaiseru sort of displayed things that I thought he did not have. He's comfortable coming back, comfortable receiving ball under pressure. He's asking, demanding for it, even when there's like an opposition player sort of tugging on his shirt. Seems like, you know, there's a lot of confidence in this guy at 21. So I think we've sort of underestimated the player that he is. He's still evolving. He's still getting better. It's just that when I look at 70 million being rejected by Brighton for Arsenal, if it's going to 80, 90 million, is he worth taking? I would say no. I would say, you know, I think that's a major part of the budget gone in terms of like, we still need to find a centre forward. We still need to get possibly a first choice goalkeeper if Gabriel Slonina is not ready. So would we want to shell out another 100 million? on a potential, you know, central midfielder who could, could not fit into, into what Graham Potter wants to play at, at Chelsea. So again, that's a big question mark for me. I think he's a good to have, but I don't think he's a must have, especially at that price. If it was 50, 60 million, all in, throw that money. But uh, 80 million, 90 million, I think that's, he's not a unicorn. He's an extremely good midfielder, but like an Enzo Fernandez, you know, I could actually trust the recruitment team to try and find somebody like a Kaisero somewhere in the market. So I would say hold back, spend somewhere else, save some money and spend it on a striker or a goalkeeper. Well, that is accurate because there are not 
a ton of settled positions in the side at the moment, and Chelsea will still have to do a little bit of retooling when it comes to the squad, both in the exodus of players out and adding in those quality reinforcements in areas of need this summer. I think at this point, though, we should round into the last player. And so this, again, another connection to a Chelsea staff individual. Um, But this is Lavia from Southampton, who look like they potentially will go down in uh, the relegation scrap this season. Finally, after years of selling talent, The bill has come due, likely, and uh, this potentially would be a player that Chelsea would be able to, I'd imagine, if uh, relegation were to happen, it would be more of a club-friendly deal in terms of the the cost that Chelsea would be able to to get him for. Yeah, 100%. Plus, I think uh, Joe Shields is yet to have his man. So uh, exactly. I (laughs) I I think this is going to be his man. I think he's... Definitely got his eye on Lavia. He's he's definitely 100% a big fan. Um, But at 19 years old, and I think what obviously sets Lavia apart is he's probably the the only pure lone six defensive midfielder in the list. Everybody else can play to some degree. But like if you want a sitter-sitter, I think Lavia is the only one who sort of fits into that mold. So um, he's also sort of shifted uh, responsibilities. He's now playing in... Uh, in a two-man midfield where he's playing next to to James Ward-Prowse and being a little more defensive. But um, if you want a 4-3-3 as the long term, then you would arguably look at a young 19-year-old like him to sort of come in and play as at the base of that midfield. He's somebody who's, um, like I mentioned, if you want a player who's extremely good in the first phase, arguably better than Ugarte, arguably better than Rice, even better than uh, um, than Moises Caicedo. I think he's incredible to watch at his age, defying any kind of fear or nerves, happy to receive it on the turn, very good at evading pressure. The way he waltzes away from challenges, the way he can telegraph where a defender or where the opposition player is trying to press him and then try to take the ball away, it's, it's, it's fun to watch. I think he's an aesthetically very pleasing player to watch. A great composure under pressure. You you see him sort of hang on to the ball even when people are are coming at him, flying at him. Speaks a lot about his maturity. I think it's it's great to see a player with that amount of self belief in his carrying skills, in his in his ball retention and technical security. So he's he's definitely playing at a at a mental age that defies his actual one. So he's he's very good to watch in that sense. He's also very safe in possession for like in, in the team that he's playing in, he's actually playing some very good football. I would arguably say one of Southampton's like, you know, uh, saving graces, just like Declan Rice. I think he's just delivering a good player. But then again, defensive midfielders do shine in bad teams. And I think that's that has to be taken with a, with a little bit of a pinch of salt, just like Declan Rice. You know, that, that happens. So um, also, again, like all the other guys, very good at, at defensive duels. Um, not so much in the air. Like Ugarte also struggles in the air. Kaiseido struggles in the air. Rice is the only one who sort of dominates uh, when it comes to winning the ball in the air. And um, like I said, I think his major, major selling point would be that he's comfortable in a three and that he can play in a two. He can be the defensive sort of enforcer 
um, in a two-man midfield as well. So his recovery numbers are, I think, the lowest of all four. He's at 8.96 and he's winning 40.6% in, in the opposition half. So uh, decent numbers, not bad. But again, not something that would arguably be um, life-changing for us. I think those numbers are something that Enzo Kovacic might be averaging for us already. So again, that's a big question mark. So I think uh, overall at his age, giving him like a seven-year, eight-year deal at 50 million, which is supposedly what Southampton would want if they get relegated, maybe even lesser, um, probably the more budget-friendly deal, you know, along with Ugarte. So um, possibly one to look at. But uh, some someone who I'm very cautious with, I think he has still a long way to go. He's... He's good to watch, but um, not somebody that I'd throw my arms out and say, you know, bring him to me. It's, it's someone who would be an option amongst the individual players that Chelsea would go after. Likely not the top tier signing that we kind of talked about with either, you know, an Ergate or with Declan Rice. But maybe more of that, you know, kind of mentioned, I think once or twice, the money ball style signing where Chelsea are looking for a little bit of a bargain to spread the funds around and try to get more players in this summer, which seems crazy to say. But you feel like there is going to be a lot of movement on getting some other players off the books to create some space for Chelsea to go after really reinforcing again youthful players, potentially those who are acclimatized to the Premier League. Not great that he's been in a bit of a struggling Southampton side, but he has had some good performances. I know he's uh, done well both uh, against uh, Tottenham and Manchester United most recently, and so there there is a little bit to, to be excited about, even though the sample size is extremely small for him relative to any one of the other players mentioned uh, before him. Yeah, definitely. He has a lot of things to work on, obviously, the sample size is a is a bit of an issue. You know, he I would want sort of like a longer number of games to have analyzed him over to to see like if he's done um held those kind of performances over a year or over a couple of years. And even like what I like to sort of do when I'm looking at players is also analyze them before and after bad spells, you know, how they're going through it. Um, how do they come out of it? If they come out of it, how they respond to adversity, you know, what their response is during a game, after a game. I haven't really had the chance to see him because it's just been, you know, small sample size. Um, I also think he's positionally a little naive. He tends to get carried away. Sometimes you see him, you know, forget his responsibilities and he'll get caught out. And then that's the last thing you want sort of like happening when when he's he's doing that. He's like Ugarte, you know, Ugarte, when I look at extremely aggressive, likes to sort of be proactive, not somebody who has the the patience to sit back and defend. I think he's still learning it. But um, yeah, it's it just somebody who needs to fine tune that aspect of his game and and know when, when the danger is coming to him and let it come to him to deal with it instead of going in and trying to get dribbled past. So maturity needed. And I think these two younger guys, like the two twenty about nineteen year old and twenty one year old, sort of like have work to do in in that sense of their game. But again, this is somebody who Manchester City have a buyback clause on apparently, which is like forty million. And considering how badly Calvin Phillips has worked out, I wouldn't be surprised if City go for a low cost option. So um, one to watch out for for sure. If it doesn't happen, I think we could move because 
I think there were reports from Fabrizio Romano saying that uh, he was one of the players who was very impressed by the project, but uh, in the end declined to come. So I think that could continue in the summer and, and probably one to watch. Well, as we round out this episode, we did promise that there were going to be a few little sprinkles on top of the midfielder Sunday at the end of all of this. And so while we rip through just three more names that you want to put out into the universe, Sam, as potential considerations as Chelsea look to restock and replenish the midfield this summer. Well, I've actually been through a lot of names. These are just three that, that instantly popped up to my mind. One was Florentino Luis. Um, for the simple reason that he, again, is somebody that I think is is well suited to the kind of football that we want to play. He's very good in possession, excellent defensively, very energetic, can sort of like be proactive and, and press, can also defend on the back foot. And again, has proven synergy with Enzo Fernandez. So I think if you want to sort of get half of the package, might as well get the full one. It's just the problem is he signed a five-year deal, I think, very recently. Uh, as recently as like six, seven months ago, just before Enzo came. So he's going to, again, you know, be a nasty piece of business. We'll have to, you know, sort of have another long drawn out uh, negotiation, wait for Fabrizio Romano on his stream. I'm not looking forward to that. So definitely can count him out of the book, but one definitely where I see other teams who haven't splurged as much as us to go after him. So one definitely there to watch. Uh, the second was Ezekiel Palacios from, from Leverkusen, uh, another Argentinian who's having a very, very good season. He's he's not similar to any of the other guys on the list, interestingly, because I, I think he can play defensive midfield, but he's, I would say, best as, as uh, a more progressive central midfielder, somebody who's very good at long passing, somebody who's always looking to progress play. But um, again, somebody who has a high quality, high quantity of, of defensive aptitude, uh, covers ground very well. And, and obviously, if you're playing in the Bundesliga, have to be very good at dealing with, with faster players in transition. So he's done very well next to, to Robert Andrick um, in the center of the park. So somebody who, again, like when we're talking about control, being comfortable, getting 90, 100 passes a game, 110 touches a game. He's doing it for Xabi Alonso's Leverkusen. So I think having somebody like him next to another Argentinian, and it could be like, you know, a, an interesting dynamic to consider. He's only 24 years old. Um, not arguably the kind of central midfielder we're looking at, but uh, could be an interesting name that we could go for. There were other couple of ones, but I thought that it would be nice to sort of zero in on Ethan Ampadu, who's out on loan. Uh, has been having some very good performances this season, like he had at Venetia. But um, it's just, he's poor guy. He's been used as a utility man. He's played, you know, right centre-back. He's played defensive midfield. At Venezia, he played, I think, seven or eight different positions. It's just trying to figure out how competent he is at on-the-ball things. You know, we haven't sort of seen the kind of ball retention, the kind of tempo dictating that we that we want to see from him. Uh, but again, somebody if you want to use as a as a defensive midfielder, instead of spending that much of money on on somebody who we haven't done our homework on, you know, wouldn't be the worst option in the world to get him back. He plays six different positions, can cover right centre back where Wesley Fofana has had injury troubles. Trev Chaloba hasn't been in the best of form. 
can also double up as a right back if, if for example, Malo Gusto has had some injury issues, Reese James again, we know. So I think wouldn't be the worst option to, to have him around. I think he's homegrown as well. The, the factor that you brought in, something to consider. So it would be a nice name to throw in, you know, it's one to keep an eye on. I haven't watched him at Spezia, but uh, I'm hoping to do so before before summer ends so we can do sort of like a nice loan report on, on how he's been getting along. Oh, I'm sure we'll have plenty to say about Ethan Ampadu and many others who are on loan this season. But we have reached the end of the line for this episode. We have talked your ears off. Uh, hopefully not, you know, hopefully they're still attached, about midfielders Chelsea might want to consider bringing in in the summer because, let's face it, it is the end of March and the start of the summer transfer window is not that far away. So you know the club is getting repaired. You know we're getting prepared, getting into summer mode. And so, Sam, thank you so much for doing all the legwork, making sure that you covered all this ground, every blade of grass on the midfielder conversation covered in this match. The heat map is just blazing red. It's like the the face of the fucking sun, my man. And you are just electric so appreciate you making sure everybody is fully prepared to see what chelsea is going to do this summer in the transfer market no, absolutely paying tribute to ngolo kante's uh, return from injury very very soon had to do something comprehensive i think it's just a position that needs a lot of love needs a lot of care so um you know i apologize for for the episode length but again may, had to make sure that you know we could pack in as much as we could so uh hopefully we've done that and uh Next up, hopefully we will do something similar for center forwards, which uh, also is a position that all of us are starving to see some quality out of. Well, not just that, but also the curse of number nines at Chelsea is how we will maybe set that one up as we take a look at who Chelsea might be considering from a forward position this summer. There needs to be a petition for Graham Potter to turn it into nine and three quarters. Just to make sure there's a little bit of magic in there. So hopefully, Todd Bowley, if you're listening, please do so. Ask the Premier League and uh, thank me later. Wow. Well, that is going to do it. Uh, Look, we're not going to dispel your excitement. We're just going to wrap up this one. And thank you so much for listening. And you know what to do until next time, Chelsea fans. Keep the blue flag flying high.